Thank you, Pastor Chad, for that prayer of supplication. I want to say thank you to our deacons, uh, particularly uh, Deacon Charlie Bird, who oversees our ordinance committee. Thank you for the fine service and faithful service that our deacons render in serving the elements of the Lord's Supper for us on a regular basis. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, where we'll resume in my part of the series of messages that you've been hearing. I hope it doesn't confuse you when we jump from one book to the other book, but we try not to present more than two books of the Bible in the series that we offer, but at least that gives a little bit of variety from Sunday to Sunday, uh, not to mention personalities. Uh, so you can't say that, oh, we're in a rut with the same old preacher with the same old messages you hear uh, a variety on a regular basis. You know, as we've been watching and, and studying in the uh, books uh, of the epistle of uh, 1 Peter here, uh, in those first chapters, as Peter has been highlighting the, the um, qualities that God's people, Christians, in even hostile environments, and I think about even the 21st century environment in which we find ourselves, not very amiable, if you would, to evangelical Christians, but still, again, uh, it's where we are at this time, and God has us here for a purpose. Now, you may recall in chapter 2, the uh, Apostle Peter was uh, elaborating on these uh, the, the characteristics and qualities and virtues of Christians uh, as they would relate to elements in society around them. And, and so he is, he's instructing these first century Christians in matters of godliness as they will relate to government and then in the workplace, as they would relate to those individuals uh, or groups in authority over them and do so with a spirit of submission. And so he carries on with this vein of thought as we begin to look in chapter 3 together. And so I invite you to join me in reading the first seven verses together in chapter 3. Because now Peter is turning his attention to the home marriage specifically, but also to the church as we relate to, the, uh, to one another. In verse 1, likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husband, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, and I would insert that word means respect, do not let your beauty be that outward adornment of arranging the hair of wearing gold or putting on fine apparel, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Let's go ahead and read verse 7. Likewise, you husbands... Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. And so as Peter is giving instructions to first century Christians, now he's speaking specifically within the context of the home and to the marriage. And so he's talking about Christian virtues, if you will, that, that need to be manifested in the Christian marriage. Virtues that need to be manifested in the Christian marriage. We talked about the importance in, ver in chapter 2 of the importance of, of a submissive spirit by Christians towards those who are in authority over them, whether it be in government or whether in the workplace. In that context, it would have been slaves to masters. To us, it's employees to employers, bosses, supervisors, etc. So now he's also bringing the focus in on the marriage. Because the way we relate to our spouses speaks a great deal about the content of our heart and the character of our, our Christian walk. And so the first few verses Peter dedicates as he's talking about Christian virtues manifested in the marriage, he gives his attention to wives. And he speaks of what I call the winsome beauty of a Christian wife. The winsome beauty of a Christian wife. And so as you look there, you see these six verses that we just read together. 
And I'd like to also add to that some verses that are parallel to what Peter's saying that we find given to us by the Apostle Paul. It's so interesting to see how these great men of faith that are instructing the early church think alike, a lot alike. And for instance, if you hold your place there in 1 Peter, or if you don't want to, just make a note of Ephesians chapter 5, a very familiar passage, but it goes along with what the Apostle Peter is saying right here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now it's important to understand, ladies, that Paul nor Peter are saying that you have to submit to every man or every husband, but only to your, this speaks directly to your relationship to your own husband. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And so also, Paul, in addressing the church at Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, simply says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as it is fitting to the Lord, or in the Lord. Now I'll take you back to 1 Peter, as we look at these first verses here, particularly focusing on, on the wife and her relationship to her own husband. And Peter again says, "Be Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And I, I think it's interesting because I think Peter is, and, and some of the scholars that I've read, seems to pick up on the, the vulnerability of, of the wife in a relationship with her husband, especially in the context in which Peter is writing. And I think that's why, and I saw some commentators agreed with this, that's why you find Peter giving six verses in addressing women, the wives, and only one verse to the husband. Because you have to understand, in that first century Roman culture, as you well know, women had no rights. They were virtually the property of their husbands. And, and their lives depended upon the whim and the desires of their husbands, and primarily they, they were there for his pleasure, and for the procreation of the family. And so they were very vulnerable to abuse by men who didn't respect them. And Peter understands this. And he understands how very vulnerable a woman is. And a wife particularly. And especially a wife who has chosen to make Jesus Christ the Lord of her life. And she has been converted to Christianity. And in that, that culture of, of many gods, pagan gods... If her husband does not convert to Christianity and chooses to continue to worship the pagan gods, then he may find himself under a good deal of scrutiny by the local community or society at large and pressured because his wife is going against the grain. She's chosen to follow this Jesus. And so that might intensify any abuse that's already there or a great deal of pressure that may be put upon her. And so Peter is addressing, I think, the wives and giving time to them so as to encourage them in this culture. And so I think it's also interesting that it seems to be in verse 1 that Peter is talking to women who are married to unsaved, non-Christian husbands. Why do we say that? Because if you'll notice in verse 1, he says, Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, Look what he says next. That even if some do not obey the word. Now that's a, an expression that Peter has just used. And you'll find it cushioned into chapter 2 in verse 7 in verse 8. Peter there in chapter 2 verse 7 and 8 refers to those who do not obey or those who are disobedient as lost. So... Peter is mindful that some of these wives that he is writing to that are a part of the church of that day are married to men who are not Christians and don't share in their love for the Lord. And yet still, Peter does not in any way encourage them to throw off their husband's authority or to reject their th husband's authority because whether he's a Christian or not, they're in a marriage bond that under the, the sacred design of Almighty God requires that the wife submit to her husband. 
And I think about the number of ladies that regularly are part of our church family who come on a regular basis and, and are not accompanied by their husbands. And I'm not making any speculation about the spiritual condition of their husband, but I know how important it is when you're a part of a church to have the love and the support uh, you know, of a husband present with you. And I just want to say to my sisters who are coming without their husbands, you, you have my great admiration and, and my deep respect. And I appreciate so much your commitment to the Lord that you would be willing to come even if your husband doesn't accompany you. And, and I want to tell you something that I'm sure you already have surmised. I pray for you, but I also pray for your husbands. And I'll never stop praying for them that God may speak to their hearts, that they may be enlightened by the Spirit of God to see the truth of the gospel and come to the, the knowledge in, uh, of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and share the wonderful faith that you do. But I just want to, from the pulpit, to salute you because it's not easy uh, to, to do that. As we look further here in, uh, in chapter 3, Peter is talking to the wives about the importance of their, their behavior, their conduct. Because you'll notice in verse 2, he says, that, or verse 1 going into verse 2, that these husbands who may not know Christ may be won by the conduct of their wives. Do you see that? When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by deep respect. So again, I'd say to those women, those wives who, whose husbands aren't Christians, certainly you can see from the implications of the Apostle Peter that you aren't going to nag them and you aren't going to drag them into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he doesn't say you need to preach to them. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't share your heart from time to time about your love for the Lord and what it means to be a Christian. But look what he says. They're watching your conduct. They're watching your attitude. They're watching your behavior. And it's through your Christian conduct, the virtues that you show as a child of God, that's what's going to eventually win the husband if he indeed has been chosen by God to experience salvation. And so as we move on in verse 3, I know a lot of times ladies get upset because, or, or at least uptight because they think, oh no, preacher's going to lambast us about dressing stylish and fixing our hair and wearing makeup, and I'm really not. Now I hope you're hearing my message this morning and even hear from the Apostle Peter that he's not, he's not against a woman taking care of herself and being outwardly uh, attractive. That, that's important in a relationship too. But you'll notice what he says. Do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair, of wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. You would have to go back into that first century, century uh, culture in which Peter's writing to. And historians have told us that it, it was kind of a problem because the women were really into adorning themselves outwardly. Probably went overboard, if you would. Some of the writers say that it was typical in that Greco-Roman culture for women to go around with their hair stacked very high. The higher, the better. Reminds me kind of the 60s when we had the big hair movement going on. But the, stack it up like a beehive. Wait, the higher, the better. Because the higher your hair was stacked up, and I don't know how they did it without hairspray, ladies, but they did. But then you could, you could, you could decorate your hair like you did a Christmas tree. And so you'd take all of your valuable jewels and diamonds and, and pearls and anything glittery, and you'd have it stuck up in your hair. And, and so the more you had in your hair, it was more prestige, you understand, as you went about in the, in the culture. And of course, along with the big hair and the jewels and all the stuff glittering, you would have just an adornment of many necklaces. And the more the merrier. So if you had a long neck, you had an advantage. Okay? But then also bracelets, you know? And then not only that, Anklets, anything, you know, wherever you could strap something on, you know, and the more the better. In fact, it was thought to be becoming that a woman could be heard coming down the street. Jingle, jangle, jingle, jangle. 
And so it was almost as if to advertise their outward appearance. And of course, the finer the garments, the more, you know, uh, flamboyant the dress, then certainly the, the, the more attractive a woman considered herself to be. And even the secular writers were told by historians, even, these are not Christian writers, even the, the writers of the secular culture that day were writing to the women of the culture and said, women, ladies, tone it down, tone it down. Well, Peter's addressing this. And then here, Peter's not saying women shouldn't adorn their hair. They shouldn't fix style their hair. They, he's not saying that you shouldn't wear makeup. In fact, I think about the old country preacher that one time said, you know, every once in a while, any barn could be made to look better by, with, with a little bit of paint. And so the farmers understood that. But I'm not saying, ladies, that you look like a barn, but, but just as bad, you know, sometimes you need a little help, you know? I wish they made makeup for men. Then I would probably lay a few layers on myself. But anyway, Peter's not saying that. He's not saying that you shouldn't wear uh, stylish clothes or that thing. But look what he's saying. He's not saying don't adorn yourself out, outwardly. But give attention. Let your priority be. Let your focus be on the adornment of your character. That beauty from within, as Peter is saying. He says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit. You combine that with what he said earlier there in verse 3 about a chaste conduct accompanied by a reverent and a respectful attitude. These are the things that are so attractive to your husband, Peter is saying. Don't try to win your husband and his love through what you can put on the outside. Sure, take time to take care of yourself and be attractive when he's around you. But at the same time, don't let that be the primary way that you present your attractiveness. Let it be the character from within. Because for that woman, that wife, whose husband does not share her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I guarantee you, her ultimate goal is to see him come to know the Lord. And if that's her goal, she will invest her heart in the process and be the kind of a wife that is a loving and a quiet spirit and a humble wife and practice humble submission. Now, it's important to understand that when we talk about this, we're not talking about a, a begrudging submission where you are, are, are browbeaten into submitting to your husband. Where every time Peter uses the term expression being submissive, he's talking about a term that speaks of a voluntary gesture, putting yourself under. Like with the government, we put ourselves under the authority of the government willingly and submit to the authority on the job. You put yourself as a good employee under the submission of the, uh, those over you, your, your supervisors and, 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 and bosses. And in the context of the marriage, because God has designed that the marriage should have a head, and that would be the husband. And, the, and, and if he is a godly Christian husband, he is under the headship of Christ himself. And so the woman, knowing that, submits herself willingly to his leadership. But they are both equal in value, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. And so I think it's interesting, too, that Peter draws from the Old Testament, and he draws from Old Testament godly women as an example to encourage these first century Christian women to be godly and, 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 and chaste and humble and submissive before their husbands. Look at verse 5. For in this manner, in former times, speaking of the Old Testament, the holy or godly women who trusted in God, and that's important, those who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. And he uses specifically Sarah, who obeyed her husband Abraham, calling him Lord. I tried that once with Jan and it didn't work. And so we just left that back there. And she still calls me Charlie or occasionally honey, but never Lord. But anyway, Sarah called, uh, called her husband Abraham Lord, whose daughters you are. In other words, as Christian women, 
Peter says, you are as if you are Sarah's daughters. You are. Not, maybe not biologically, but you are by faith. Because you share the same love and dedication to God and you trust the Lord as, as Sarah did so that you demonstrate that love for God by submitting to your husband even as Sarah did to Abraham. Of course, there were other women in the Bible. I think about Ruth. What a wonderful example of a godly woman who understood what it meant to trust God and who willingly would submit herself to her husband to be Boaz. You remember that story how she went to the threshing floor at the instruction of her mother-in-law and, and, and she you know, laid down at his feet and, and uncovered his feet and laid down at his feet as he was sleeping at the threshing floor as a gesture that she was submitting herself to him if he would take her as, a, as her kinsman redeemer to be her, his wife. And of course he did. And, and then we think about in Proverbs 31. What a beautiful rendition that is of a godly woman and her submission to her husband and her respect for her husband and, and how her children and her husband called her blessed because she manifested this kind of beauty, this kind of virtue in the Christian in her marriage, Christian marriage to her husband, even if her husband is not a Christian, a, a Christian wife can still manifest this, in fact should manifest these virtues because she is the best witness he has to the Christian faith. So that's the winsome beauty of a Christian wife. And you know, as I look across this congregation and think about the other ladies back there working with the children and other duties, we're so blessed to have some of the most beautiful Christian wives in all of Christendom right here. And what a joy you are to this pastor and to those around you. And, and what an inspiration you are. And I want to encourage you to continue to trust in the Lord and seek to please Lord. And let that inward beauty of yours shine in your relationship with your husband, but also in the midst of the body of Christ. Now we turn to the husbands. Listen up, brothers. You only got one verse. I could probably write three chapters, but I'm not the one writing the scriptures. But anyway, likewise, in other words, in the same vein of thinking, gentlemen, since we're talking about this virtue, the virtues of the Christian character manifesting itself in the home, in the marriage, if ever a man's testimony ought to stand, it ought to stand in the presence of his wife. Nobody knows you Gentlemen, like your wife. You might fool the preacher and you might fool the deacons. You might fool the congregation from time to time. But let me tell you something. Your wife knows. I think I'm going to just have the wives start writing me essays about their husbands. But no. Likewise, you husbands. In other words, when we think about exhibiting Christian virtue and a submissive spirit. He says, you husbands, you're included. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them. Speaking of their wives. With understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together and of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I think it's important here, I'll tell you what, before comment on that, before we move further, I, I want to go back again to those parallel passages that we find in Ephesians chapter 5 and in Colossians, because there again in Ephesians chapter 5, you'll find Paul, you'll find Paul speaking very similarly to husbands. In, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You see the analogy Paul is using between Christ and the church and the husband and the wife? And of course, he tells the wives, submit to your own husbands. But then he turns to the husbands and he says, and you, men, husbands, you have the God-given responsibility to love your wife as Christ loves the church. And in case some of them may have been a little bit dense, he lets them know that he, he, he explains. And Christ was willing to give himself for her. In other words, Paul, Paul is saying, your love for your wife should be such that you would be willing at any time 
in an instant, without thinking, no second thought, lay down your life for your wife. For years, I've made it a practice in my prayer log. I have my family members and, and of course, then all the church leaders and members and things like that. But, but when I get to my page where it's dedicated to Jan, I, I, I systematically and, and heartfeltly tried to earnestly pray that. That's what I asked the Lord. I said, Lord, I want you to help me to love Jan as, as you love the church. Help me with that, Lord, because that's the only way I need to love her. And I challenge husbands to do likewise. In Colossians in chapter 3, Paul again says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. And then again, that historical context, certainly men were chauvinistic and they, women had no rights. They didn't have groups that could gather in Washington on the mall and protest. You know, women were on their own. And, Peter, and Paul reminds the husband, you love your wife and don't be bitter towards her. Now we go back to chapter 3 in 1 Peter. Likewise, you husbands, dwell with them, your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And could I just offer comment there for the benefit of the ladies in the crowd today, in the congregation today? Peter's not in any way suggesting, when he uses that term weaker, he's not in any way suggesting that a woman is weaker emotionally or spiritually or intellectually. We know that Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 that, that a, husband, a man and a wife, a man and a woman are equal in God's eyes. We are. And, and yet Peter is simply saying that by God's divine design, the woman generally, and I'll emphasize generally, has a weaker physical composition. She's more feminine and delicate. You know, he talks about her as a weaker vessel. And, and, and you know, I think about in the context of our own kitchen back home, you know, I, I have my coffee mug. And it's rugged and tough and it's designed to be banged around and dropped and rolled and whatever. You know, it's tough. But then there's somewhere in the midst of the cabinets are those delicate vessels that, that have been handed down from our family, China. And, and so Jan has these China cups. She'd probably cringe if she saw me walking out the door with one of her China cups, drinking coffee, heading to jump in my car. Because it's delicate. It needs, you don't handle that mug like you handle that delicate China cup. And, and Peter's just reminding the husbands, your wife is equal with you in God's eyes. But she is delicate. She is that weaker vessel that, and, and I say generally, that's a general rule of, of thumb because it's a divine principle, you know, generally speaking, but it's not an infallible law. And, and the reason I say that, I remember one time we were in Kenya on a missions trip, and I think it was one of my first, I'm just learning the culture. And, and we were in a mountainous region, and we were with a, a group of church people, and we were out doing evangelism. And we're getting ready to mount this mountain, to go up this mountain. There was a trail that wound its way up there. And I noticed this lady that had been walking along with us. She was a young lady, and, and, um, and she was carrying a big sack on her head. And, and she had that thing strapped up there. Oh, I, I know what it was. She had a long bandana that went around her forehead and it went down under the back of the sack and she carried that sack. So we had stopped at a resting point and took and had some water and what have you, getting ready to make our mount up that uh, hillside. And, and being the American gentleman that I am, you know, the nice southern gentleman that I am, I, I just moseyed on over there to where the lady was, you know, and she'd already placed the sack down and was resting a little bit. So I said, here, ma'am, I'll take that sack for you, you know, trying to appear like a nice cordial missionary. So, you know, I reached down to grab the sack, and I'm thinking, you know, it's just probably got some light fluff stuff in it, and you know, I go, ugh. <laughs> so I look around, and I, ugh, you know. <laughs> Finally, one of the pastors rushed over to me and says, oh, no, Brother Charlie, no, uh, Pastor Charlie, no, no. Says that, that would be an insult. A man doesn't carry things here. The women, you know, they carry the wood, and they carry the seeds, and, and all you know, they do the, their, the toting and the lifting. And I said, man, we thought we had it made in America. But anyway, he said, no, no, no. That would be an insult if you were to carry a sack. And I said, oh, yes, yes. I, I won't bother to carry. 
I, I didn't tell him I couldn't carry it anyway. So in that instance, I, I would say I was a weaker vessel physically than she was. So it's a general principle, but Peter's saying, husbands, as you relate to your wives, see them as God sees them. See them as God designed them and, and love them as that delicate, you know, feminine uh, creature and, and, and co-heir as Christ has called her by the apostle Peter here. And you know what? A Christian man understands that. A godly man knows that. He doesn't treat his wife as just any other being. And she senses that. And she knows that he's watching over her. And he knows, she knows she, he's protecting her. Nobody dare threaten his woman. And she enjoys that. Even though she could probably whip him. But anyway. <laughs> when a husband relates in such a manner, dis displaying these kind of virtues towards his wife, listen, it, re it results in the wife feeling affirmed. It, it, it results in her feeling cherished. It results in her feeling equally valuable in her husband's eyes and a wise husband realizes what an asset his life partner is to him. She's worth investing love in and patience and understanding as, as Peter was talking about there. Just as a husband needs to feel respected by his wife, a wife needs to feel safe and loved and valued by her husband. And that's been proven in studies in marriages. The greatest need men say they have in a marriage, the greatest need they have is to be respected by their wife. That's why the Bible tells, wives respect your husbands. And then also, a wife needs to feel loved. She needs to feel valued. She needs to feel appreciated. And so Peter is nailing this right here as he talks about that. And so the result of it for the men, number one, you have a closer walk with your wife. When you do it God's way, you're going to have a closer walk with your wife. You're going to have a more meaningful relationship with her. But also, and, and by the way, the idea, when, when, when he talks about this idea in, in, in verse 7 there, about being heirs together of the grace of life. Peter's not talking about eternal life. He's talking about the privilege, the blessing of marriage. That, that men, when you do it God's way, you, you are in this wonderful experience with the, uh, uh, as heirs together of the grace of life, which is an, uh, an intimate companionship with your wife. Now, you may not, you say, well, big deal. Everybody has that, right? No. In that culture, in that time, it was unheard of. It was unheard of. It was unthinkable that a man could enjoy an intimate companionship with his wife. Because that's not the way men looked at women then. And Peter says, look, you're going to have a closer walk with your wife. But not only that, look, at, look how that verse ends. That your prayers may not be hindered. You're going to have a closer walk with the Lord. Gentlemen, let me tell you something. When you are treating that bride the way that God has designed and called upon you to treat her, then let me tell you something that pleases the Lord. To treat a woman with disrespect and be hurtful and short and impatient and to degrade her, let me tell you something. Your answer to God for that, that's a sin. And didn't the scriptures tell us in Psalm 66, 18, if, if the Lord regards iniquity in my heart, He won't hear my prayers. Peter says, you wonder why your prayer life is waning and why you have no power in your prayers? You wonder why you don't have an effective prayer life? Stop and consider the way you're living in a relationship with your own wife. Because when you treat her like God says treat her, He says, then your prayers will be unhindered. So much to learn as we look back in time. But we need to move along because 
There's, there's a few more verses I want us to look at in, in verses 8 through 12. Because the Apostle Peter addresses the need of a submissive, godly spirit within the church and the community. So we're moving out from marriage and home out into the, well, first of all, the, the, the church, the body of Christ. And so Christian virtues need to be manifested in the context of the church. Marriage. And then the church, how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is important to the Lord. Think about what Jesus taught in John's gospel in chapter 13 when he told his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you shall also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so that was important to the Lord. But also if you remember that wonderful priestly prayer I call the Lord's Prayer in John 17 where Jesus Christ the Son is speaking directly to God the Father in this wonderful prayer. In verse 21 he says to, the, to God the Father speaking of his disciples that they all may be one as you Father are in me and I in you and they may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Do you, do you sense that, that unity is a big thing to the Lord? In verse 23, I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. In verse 26, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. Jesus stressed the importance of the church being unified, being one, one in the Lord and loving one another with the love that he gives us. That's what he's saying. There should be that kind of love in the midst of the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul addresses this also in Romans in chapter 12, listen to what Paul says. This is the attitude of believers in the context. Just imagine this describes Cornerstone. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor. giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer. Distributing to the needs of the saints. Giving to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. My goodness, what a description for the spirit of a, of a local congregation. Oh to God that that would be how people would see us if they came in here and watched the way we related to one another. And not only that, the Apostle Paul talked about it over in Colossians when he talked about the church in Colossians. In chapter 4, verse 5, listen to what he says. He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each other. So, as, and, and then in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Therefore, as the elect of, the, of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, hum, humbleness of mind, meekness and longsuffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do but listen to what he says but above all these things he's talking to Christians he's talking to church members but above all these things put on love which is the bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you also were called one body and be thankful so even before we look at what Peter says right there we hear what Paul and Christ has said about the church now we direct our attention back to chapter 3 of 1st Peter and we look there beginning in verse 9 or verse 8 rather finally all of you and he's talking to the church be of one mind is that reminiscent of what Christ just said about the church being one unified in unity 
He says, finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. He's talking about the, the, the relationships within the church. Because the way that we relate to each other in the church, as a family, let me tell you something, that is one of the most powerful witnesses we have to the outside world. Nothing can be more damaging to the church than to allow the word to get out in the community that the church members are at odds with one another they don't agree there's bickering and fighting and there's division let me tell you something you don't even need to go out witnessing then if that's if that's the witness the church has already cast out there to the local community nobody's going to want to hear a thing you got to say if that's the impression they have of the congregation so you see the importance of how we live together and relate together. On the other hand, in contrast, when the word is out there in the community that the Holy Spirit is filling the hearts of those believers, those church members, their hearts are being filled. They love each other. There's a genuine love and a care for each other like you've never seen. Christians are to practice harmony and sympathy towards each other and brotherly love and compassion and have unselfish humility putting the needs of others ahead of our own within the community of faith. And that is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. That's what Peter is saying. All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. But also, let's consider the Christian virtues that we exhibit as we move out from the church. Because we, that's a part of our calling. Our Christian virtues also must be shown in the way we relate to outsiders. And that's what Peter is saying here. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And then he quotes out of Psalm 34, verse 15 through 16. He says... The psalmist says, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Our Christian love is shown in the way that we relate to outsiders. You may come to church and, and put on your Sunday best, talking about your attitude and your actions and your words. And you may, you know, oh, bless you, brother. You know, God bless your sister. Oh, hallelujah. And then you go back to that workplace where you're under a little bit of stress and tension. And you begin to cuss like a sailor. And you begin to, to, to bicker and badger and, you know, and everybody thinks you're just a grunt, you know. And, and or you go to school and, and, and other kids at school hear you using curse, cursing and, and talking dirty and, and talking about the things you've watched on pornographic sites. And listen, you can undo your witness in a hurry. That's why, as I shared with you, that passage out of Colossians that Paul was talking about there and how we should walk in wisdom towards those who are outside redeeming the time. I like the translation that says, be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. When you go out there and you go to school or you go into your neighborhood or you go to your workplace or wherever the Lord has you on a regular basis, Monday through Friday or whatever, don't you ever lose sight of the fact, don't ever forget that how you conduct yourself in the midst of people outside, whether it's right down here at Food Line or out here in the community somewhere, when you begin to act like a heathen in the presence of other people that are outside the church, you not only are damaging your witness, but you are hurting the good witness of this church and the good name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I trust that is not happening out there. But Paul, Paul says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Be wise in the way you act out towards outsiders and make the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And so, 
As we think about the second greatest commandment, when Jesus was talking there in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, He says, the first commandment is you love the Lord with all your heart. But what did He say? The second greatest commandment was you love your neighbor as yourself. We have a responsibility in considering how we act towards those outside of the church, irregardless of our circumstances, we should always exhibit a Christ-like, caring, compassionate attitude towards people who are out there who are our neighbors. And I'll say this, Cornerstone is doing a good job in loving and caring for and ministering to those in the church. And I thank God for that. But it's time, and we need to, Follow God's leadership out into the community. It's a great thing for the body of Christ to know how much you love them and you care about them and how unselfish and loving and compassionate you are towards brothers and sisters in the Christ in the church. But let me tell you something. God's also got another dimension to this plan we call the Great Commission. And He says we ought to be going out. And showing that same love and that same compassion and that same concern for those who are outside of the church. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, He says, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine that men will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our light can't shine, ladies and gentlemen, not in an evangelistic way, if we keep it inside of the walls of the church. Our leadership is praying and taking steps to put together what we call a missions impact team. And I want to extend an invitation to any of you who may feel a call or nudge of God on your heart to be a part of helping to lead our church out into our local community to impact the lives of those. We're doing a little bit of that now with our Team Kids Club and bringing children from the Plantation Place apartments down here on Sunday evenings and teaching them the Word of God and loving on them and feeding them and playing games with them. But there's a whole lot more that needs to be going on between Cornerstone and the community around us. But look at, go back here to the passage that we're looking at, and I'm going to close. As we look at that Psalm 34, which is verses 10 through 12, Peter's quoting from that Psalm. And it says, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and let his lips and his lips from speaking guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. But look at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You know, God's omniscient observation, I'll call it that, just being aware of God's omniscient observation. Our God is sovereign. He is all-seeing. He is all-knowing. And ladies and gentlemen, there's nowhere you go when you leave this church till you come back. There's nothing you do that God doesn't see it, that God doesn't know it. And Peter is quoting this psalm that says to the saints, listen, the eyes of the Lord are on you. And He's watching if you walk past a neighbor or someone outside of the church and you have an absolutely indifferent attitude towards them or an uncaring spirit and you hoard your money rather than being unselfish and helping those in need. Listen, the eyes of the Lord are watching and His ears are listening to what you say. And when you don't say something nice to people, you say something harsh and short. Listen, not only do they hear it, but God hears it. That ought to be the motivation for every one of us as Christians to realize that when we leave from this church, God's watching. He's watching where you spend your time. He's watching who you interact with. He's watching what you do in the name of Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful parallel to an Old Testament passage that I oftentimes think about. In 2 Chronicles in chapter 16, verse 9, this, the writer says, And the eyes of the Lord run to and fro 
over the earth. Just picture this now. This is real. Right there in Psalms, but also in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. Just picture it. The eyes of Almighty God scan this earth like nothing man has ever been able to do. Constantly, intricately scanning the earth. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro over the earth that he may show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect towards him. Do you understand that every day of my life, every day of your life, God is scanning the earth and all He's looking for are those people who call Him Lord, who trust in Him and who are committed to doing the things that would honor Him out there in the world. And when you have that kind of faith and you're willing to step out on faith and engage people outside of the church with that kind of spirit, let me tell you something. God is looking to bless people. The reason that so many Christians are unblessed is they're not taking Him up on the offer. May that never be the case for us as a church. May that never be the case for you or me as a Christian. I pray every day that God would watch and as he's scanning, I pray that I'm demonstrating my faith and trust in him. And it's reflected and manifested in the way that I act towards those outside of the church. And when he sees that, that points to him. It gives him glory. And he, in turn, brings a blessing. There's a lot to be said about the virtues of the Christian walk. And there are plenty of opportunities, as we see from Peter, to put those wonderful virtues into practice. This is not a book about just good philosophy, having the right kind of mindset, and, and, and you know, and, and meditating all the time on it. No, no, no. This is a very practical book. The Word of God is intended to, to inspire us and to move us, and the very virtues that he lists from the pages, Peter said, put them into effect. Start with your marriage. And then to the church. And then go on out there into the community and live daily as the people of God so that people will see your good works and they'll glorify your Father in heaven and God will bless. And I believe with all my heart that if we take this to heart and we apply it, and our missions impact teams under the direction of Sister Wendy, Wendy, God bless you, it leads us to do that, God will begin to pour blessings upon our church that we can't measure. For his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.